This is Undisciplined. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. This week we're talking about fatigue. It's frequently the biggest complaint from people recovering from surgery, cancer, or living with chronic illness. Yet, until recently, it's been largely ignored by medical researchers and not always taken seriously by doctors. There's no blood test to diagnose debilitating fatigue, and everyone gets tired from time to time, so it's hard to understand its effects if you've never experienced it. And our American obsession with productivity doesn't help either. After a cancer diagnosis, treatment, and years of unending fatigue, medical historian Emily Abel decided to chart the history of the commonly overlooked malady. Emily Abel is a professor emerita of public health and women's studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, and the author of the book Sick and Tired, The Intimate History of Fatigue, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Emily Abel, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. Okay, so let's start with the basics here. What is fatigue exactly? Like, how would you define it? And how is it different from being tired, for example? The problem with what you're asking me is that fatigue really is a very ambiguous notion. We we talk about it in all sorts of ways. Right now, people are talking that, that they're getting pandemic fatigue with this new um, variant. So it can mean a lack of energy. It can be it can mean just plain tiredness. Um, sometimes it's a euphemism. Sometimes it means idleness. I use it really to talk about um, what I call chronic fatigue, which is very different from acute fatigue because it lasts a long time and it is not usually relieved by sleep. Yeah. So is that part of the problem is that we use the word fatigue in like so many different cases that it's hard to distinguish what you're describing of this long-term period of fatigue versus what we're talking about of fatigue of hearing about the pandemic or something like that. Absolutely. And um, people always say, well, I'm fatigued, I'm tired. And other people say, well, you know, drink some tea, drink some coffee. Um, there isn't aware, a lot of awareness of chronic fatigue, which is very different from the kind of fatigue that most people feel at the end of a day or at the end of a hike when they're just, you know, they say, I'm tired. And then they get some rest or they eat something. But chronic fatigue is is different. Yeah, yeah. And so you talk about in this book about having this sort of life-altering bout of fatigue after you had treatment for cancer. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience and why that motivated you to write this book and look into the history of fatigue? Right. I, I It was partly my experience um, because it was so odd. I'd been somebody with an enormous amount of energy. And then after cancer treatment, it, I I just felt totally different. But really what motivated me more than my feeling was the fact that nobody took it seriously. Everybody said, oh, well, I'm I'm tired too. And also doctors have no interest in fatigue, or at least the ones I consulted. I like my doctors very much, but I couldn't find one who took fatigue seriously at all. And eventually I just gave up trying. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a common experience um, with folks that are dealing with fatigue for a variety of different issues. And so I myself was diagnosed with a chronic pain condition many years ago and then had hip surgery about like five years ago. And like 
the experience of intense fatigue that I had for almost two years after my surgery was like nothing I ever experienced. And my surgeon did not explain that to me in any type of way that I understood. And I was very young at the time. I was still in my 20s. Um, It was almost impossible to explain that feeling, I guess, if you've never had it before. Yes, and it it's actually similar to pain in that there is acute pain, there's chronic pain. People do, don't warn against it, although that is changing with cancer treatment. I think that um, oncologists have started to warn, pe- warn people that the treatment could have long-term effects. Now that more oncologists have realized that this is a serious problem. Yeah, so why is it so hard to get to get doctors to sort of understand fatigue and like the side effects of different um, therapies like chemotherapy for cancer or other types of surgeries, treatments, chronic illnesses? Like why is it so hard for medical professionals to sort of wrap their heads around this phenomenon? Well, I think partly doctors don't really listen to patients, and that's one difficulty. Um, And they base things on tests. And I should also speak about people with chronic fatigue syndrome. We're hearing much more about that now. And we're also hearing much more, not just about um, pandemic fatigue, but about these long haulers who are suffering from fatigue more than anything else. And they're having a lot of trouble getting other people to take them seriously. Yeah, I definitely want to um, get into the um, long haulers because I think that's definitely a really pressing sort of issue. So I'll definitely, we'll, we'll definitely circle back to that. So one of the things that you touch on in your book that I found um, really interesting was this idea of recovery stories and how they play into our understanding of fatigue. We hear this sort of narrative a lot of the woman who beat breast cancer and now she's running a marathon or similar sort of stories of triumph. So how does that play into our understandings of fatigue? Yeah. Yes, I think we're, and we're conditioned to think that if something happens like surgery or cancer treatment and we survive, then we should recover. And, um, and we all want to recover. So that's not surprising. It's the, it's the problem with saying we should, that we have to, that makes that, that gets us all into trouble because there are many chronic conditions. And uh, I think our society is just beginning to realize how important chronic, chronic conditions are, not just acute ones. And um, again, <laughs> I know you said you want to talk about long haul, mm-hmm. um, long haul COVID later, but um, I we think can that's, jump into it now. <laughs> okay, I think that's a really good example because for so long we just heard how many hospitalizations, how many people recovered, and suddenly it was the patients themselves who started saying, "You know, I feel terrible after months," and. Um, nobody took them seriously. I actually have a son-in-law who was ill for seven months, and the only way he could get anybody to listen to him was to join a support group and find other people who were suffering in the same way. Yeah, I did some reporting um, last summer on long COVID patients as well, and a lot of the folks that I talked to said, you know, they'd go to the doctor and they'd say, you know, I had COVID or I suspect I had COVID, but it was before it was the very beginning before you could even get tested and they said you know I have these really crazy symptoms that just aren't going away and the biggest one that everyone told me was fatigue like they just could not 
go to work. They couldn't do what they were doing before. And like you had said, they go to the doctor and the doctor's like, well, the World Health Organization says that COVID symptoms should last for only two weeks. Right. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what they're told. And um, I hate to say it, but long COVID has helped to uh, uh, direct some attention to fatigue Mm -hmm. because so many long haulers are saying that is the condition that really has changed their lives, that makes it impossible to work or really just enjoy leisure or their families or anything else. So I wouldn't wish this on anybody, and I'm really horrified by how many people are suffering in that way, but it has served to um, focus more attention on fatigue. Yeah, and and I think, though, that, too, um, when people talk about the threat of COVID, they often overlook long COVID. People are talking about it more now, but I think even with, as we've seen this increase in the Delta variant, people are talking about less people are being hospitalized, but you can still get long COVID even if you have sort of quote unquote minor symptoms. So I think people still aren't really factoring that into the bigger picture. I think that's absolutely true. And I found very little about long COVID with with these breakthrough um, conditions that people have. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, every time somebody says not to worry, it will be a minor illness if you get it. I think, yeah, but when will I recover? Will I ever get better? So that's that's really what scares me. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we don't really think about a lot as as you sort of chronicled through this um, this book. And one of the other things that that makes me think about is our sort of like obsession with productivity. Um, and so what role does that play in sort of understanding fatigue and then like the efforts to combat it? Yes, well, I think in our society, we really link personal worth to the amount that individuals can can produce. So if fatigue limits our ability to work, we really lose social value. That's something that people are discovering with long fatigue. Now, there are other reasons, there are other problems, of course, with not being able to work. You know, people lose salary, people suffer economically. But um, what I was talking about was this sense of shame that people have because we so much link productivity with our sense of, of human worth. Mm-hmm. And um, you touched on this earlier, but I wanted to circle back on it of fatigue is often intermingled with depression and chronic pain. And you go into a lot of that research um, because there's limited research on just fatigue um, itself. So how do like conditions like depression and chronic pain, how do they overlap with fatigue and how are they sort of separate or different from fatigue? Well, I would say that actually both of those conditions are very similar to fatigue. Nobody takes you seriously. They last for a long time. They can't be seen. However, they are really different. The problem with the close connection between fatigue and depression is that people who are fatigued are automatically seen as depressed. They're either seen as inventing their symptom or they're seen as it all being a mental health problem. And people do get depressed because they have fatigue, but depression and fatigue are very different. And when I finished cancer treatment and started to tell people that I had this, you know, lingering fatigue that was interfering with my life, 
everyone said, everyone, physicians, doctors, you know, the doctors, friends, family all said, well, you must be depressed. You really should get mental health help. So I went to a psychiatrist who said, you know, you don't seem depressed. You just (laughs) seem tired, which was really helpful. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, patients go to the doctor and they're looking not just for sort of treatment, but they're also looking for validation to say, what I'm going through is real. It's not in my head. And then it sort of circles into this sort of like doubt spiral of like, am I causing my own symptoms? Is what's going on really real? Um, Can you talk a little bit about where this idea came from that a patient is like causing their fatigue or causing these sort of long-term physical symptoms? Because I think it seems pervasive. It's absolutely pervasive. People say, okay, you're depressed. That's one thing they say. The other thing they say is, hmm, I guess you're a malingerer. I guess you really don't want to work. And that's a terrible thing to say to somebody who has been trying so hard to regain a kind of productive life. And um, people are saying, well, you know, if you really wanted to work, you could do it. But um, you're you're a, a malingerer. You're really trying not to work. We shouldn't take this seriously, um, and that also causes people a lot of harm. Yeah. So you talk a little bit about in the book of this like psychosomatic sort of movement. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that that movement seeped into our cultural understanding now of fatigue? Sure. There. Um, I actually grew up in the 1950s when. Um, the psychosomatic movement was very pronounced. And so I did grow up thinking anytime I was ill, I should look for some psychological reason. And um, that was very that, that was very common in the 1950s. And it made it much more difficult for me when I um, when I did experience fatigue. I, I think I was primed to say this is a psychological issue because I had grown up when that when that movement was so dominant. I mean, I would say there is, there is, of course, a whole field of medicine called psychosomatic medicine, which is very important and is not treated seriously. I think the problem is that when patients come with a physical problem and there is no obvious medical solution, medical explanation, then doctors say, oh, this must be a mental problem. But um, I really, I I don't want to cast, I don't want to cast um, any, uh, any doubt on psychosomatic medicine as a field, which is you know, a wonderful mm-hmm. field in many ways. Right, right. Yeah. So um, in the book, you talk about neurosthenia, and it was a common diagnosis at the turn of the 20th century. So can you tell me briefly sort of what is it and what were the treatments for it? And why did you decide to focus focus on this in the book? Yes. Well, neurasthenia was a condition that was it was sort of discovered in 1869 by um, George Beard. And he said it had many symptoms, but the most common one was fatigue. He also claimed that it affected pe- mostly people of the higher social orders. In other words, people who use their minds instead of their bodies in work. And so it, it sometimes it became almost a fashionable diagnosis. I should say 
it, looking at neurasthenia is really important to a medical historian because it makes us understand that some of our disease classifications go in and out. They aren't all stable. Here was a condition that many people thought they had at one time, and mm-hmm. we never hear about it now. And so was it, it kind of lost favor, and that was because they discovered that it wasn't an accurate grouping, that people maybe had other disorders. Can you kind of talk about why it sort of came in vogue and then why they stopped diagnosing people with it? Yeah, you know, I I'm, I don't really know why they stopped diagnosing people, but they <laughs> did around, uh, you know, by the 1920s and started looking at other conditions more seriously. Hmm. Yeah. And, and so, how, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say neurasthenia, no, there were no diagnostic con- criteria for neurasthenia like fatigue, like some of these other conditions. So that also made it suspect. But it was something that people could take a little pride in. It's a lot of a lot of very famous people thought they had neurasthenia. People like William James, Virginia Woolf. They were people who had a lot of status in society and um, were very productive. And so, what were the treatment for neurasthenia, and was it different? And I think it was different for men versus women, right? It was definitely different. The major treatment for women was the rest cure. And that was, I would say, invented really by a doctor named S. Weir Mitchell. A lot of people have seen the rest cure as something terrible that was done to women. Actually, Mitchell devised it after he saw soldiers in the Civil War who had had what he considered neurasthenia. Um, but it was women, much more than men, who were told that they should go to bed, they should lie down, they should have no um, no stimulation at all. There's a very famous um, description of it um, by Charlotte Perkins Gilman called the Yellow Wallpaper. It, as she even acknowledged, that was sort of a caricature. um, The yellow wallpaper really became (laughs) a standard book in all women's studies courses to show how terrible men treated women. But even she said, you know, it wasn't quite as awful as that. However, Virginia Woolf also spoke about it. Um, um, And in Mrs. Dalloway, she talked about um, somebody named Septimus Warren Smith, one of the characters who committed suicide because he was so afraid that he would be um, sent to a doctor's rescue. Now, that was in England, obviously, not in this country, but um, it really reflected Virginia Woolf's belief that, or, or, or her experience of the rescue, which was so terrible. But you um, said, how is, was it different for men and women? Often men were told that they should go west. So men were prescribed with an active kind of solution to the problem. Women were more often told that they should take to their beds. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, it's sort of like they're diagnosed with the same condition, but our remedies are dependent on our sort of understandings of gender. Gender, absolutely, but also class. Yeah. Because you couldn't tell a working class woman that she should take to her bed. Nobody ever did. Probably, you know, the, probably the most tired person in many of these houses was the domestic worker who um, 
who had to go home every night, who really worked hard, and nobody took that person's fatigue very seriously. Yeah, you also talk about this sort of difference um, between neurasthenia and this sort of upper class fatigue sort of thing, and then as compared to working people and like ways to optimize working class people or people working in factories that they don't experience fatigue. There was like this whole sort of scientific understanding of like the differences between classes. Well, there were lots of different understandings. There was something called industrial fatigue at the turn of the 20th century, and that was focused on working working people. So what led to that sort of disregarding this sort of industrial <laughs> fatigue? Well, I think it was partly um, the trade union movement lost a lot of its power. Um, and also somebody named Frederick Winslow Taylor became very concerned. Um, he, he really was not concerned with fatigue. He actually said, doc- uh, not doctors, but workers in engaged in something called soldiering, which meant that they, um, you know, they took too many breaks, they loafed a lot. And he said the problem was really psychological and productivity depended much more on the psychological state of workers than on their working hours. And that was not very helpful for workers at all. Right. And yeah, and now we talk a lot about burnout and that, that, affliction, I guess, um, can be viewed as a form of intense fatigue. And that sort of only affects the sort of like higher managerial class of workers. We don't talk about burnout for people that are working two to three minimum wage jobs just to get by. No, no. And burnout is a kind of stress and stress really came into vogue after World War Two, so that Concerns with fatigue really disappeared, and fatigue and stress are similar, but they're not the same thing. Studies have shown that the poorest paid workers really do experience the most stress, but the the kind of stress management programs we have all focus on professionals and executives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's sort of this mismatch. I Absolutely. Looking through the history of fatigue and looking back on the past hundred years or so or a little more, what do you think, what can we learn from our cultural and time-based understandings of fatigue um, and how can that be used to understand our current, the current moment we're living in? Yes, um, hmm. that's an interesting question. Uh, You know, a lot of things are happening that are good. There are more and more support groups for people who have some of these invisible conditions. Um, And some of these these support groups have really become, um, really turned into social movements. That certainly has happened with the chronic fatigue syndrome movement. There's a very good, um, uh, you know, it's called... ME Action, which has brought a lot of uh, attention to chronic fatigue syndrome. And I I think that I guess I would look really to some of the sufferers to um, improve things. And I think they really have done that. And they're they're working hard at doing it more. Yeah. So you think that 
we're at a point where people are starting to pay attention to this, to fatigue more and all the sort of like associated conditions than they have in the past. I wouldn't say it's, you know, overwhelming, but I would say that there are movements that are trying to direct more attention. And also I would say, unfortunately, long hauls COVID has directed attention to this. And uh, I think that there's more and more funding now for fatigue. Uh, For years, there was very little. And recently, there has been much more, which is, of course, one thing that people in these social movements have wanted. Yeah, so hopefully that this is a turning point and there's more funding for this important type of research. Um, But Emily, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed reading the book and having the opportunity to talk with you more about it. Thanks very much for inviting me. So I've been talking with Emily Abel. She's a professor emerita of public health and women's studies at UCLA, and she's the author of Sick and Tired, An Intimate History of Fatigue, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. This is our producer Naomi Ward's last episode. Naomi, thanks so much for helping make this show possible. And this week's episode was mixed by Claire Scott she'll be taking over as the show's new producer. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.